While Jesus hung on a cross, the priests were busy in the temple. And they were busy in the temple preparing the Passover lamb to be killed, slaughtered, and sacrificed. You know, the scene would be one where the sun was setting, darkness was falling over Jerusalem and Calvary like a shroud. And then Jesus on the cross declared those last words, It is finished. And when he spoke those words, can you imagine those priests that were bustling about in the temple, preparing to sacrifice and getting ready for the Passover? The temple veil was torn. Now, some of us may not have a picture of the temple exactly, but we'll, we will have a little bit later, I think. But there's a big veil that separated the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, from the holy place. And the one time a year, the priest got to go into the Holy of Holies. And that was it. But when Jesus spoke those words and said, it is finished, that veil was torn. And the significance of that. You could ask the simple question, was that a coincidence? Or was there a divine sign from God when Jesus spoke those words and said, it is finished? And the veil was torn. Now, there are answers to a lot of these questions found in the Old Testament of all places. There's a lot of types and shadows and foreshadowing of Christ. Things that pointed to Jesus going back centuries pointing to Jesus. If we understand and read what the Bible says, the, found, the, the, the plan of salvation was established before the foundation of the world. In other words, before creation, God had a plan. This plan that Jesus was going to come to earth. God in the flesh and die for us. The series that we're on right now is simply called Among Us. A Christmas story. The specific title of the message this week is Jesus Tabernacled Among Us. In today's text, we're going to be looking at in just a moment, it's John 1, starting in verse 14 through 18. John uses a word. The Greek word there is skanao, skanao. And in most of our translations, or in many of our translations, that word is translated dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word there, the meaning of that Greek word, it's actually like, it's a verb, an action thing. It means to set up your tent, to set up your tabernacle, or tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time, actually most of my message this morning, talking about the reality of Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling, tabernacling among humankind. And we're going to look at what that word would maybe have meant, what, what thoughts it might have set off in the mind of a Jewish person hearing that word. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. If you remember, um, a week ago, I talked a little bit about the Greek mindset and the Jewish ancient Jewish mindset. Well, this word would have certainly set off something in the Jewish mind, And again, John, John, the author of this gospel, is again telling something 
to the Greek people of the day also. So before we go into that, I want to just read a dictionary. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery is where this, this come from comes from. And it's in reference to this word that John chose to use. And that dictionary says this, By using this word, the author of the gospel, John, intends us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the tabernacle. God is indeed present among men and women. The tabernacle. There are so many things in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And the tabernacle not only pointed to the Messiah, it points out and demonstrates the work of the plan of salvation when we look at it. So I'm going to read the text this morning first, and then we're going to uh, take off. The text is in John 1, verses 14 through 18. The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. He came full of grace and full of truth. John testifies concerning Him, and he cries out saying, "This This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me was surpassed, has surpassed me because he was before me. This is John the Baptist saying those words. That's quoting John the Baptist. He's saying, this is the one that I was saying was coming. The one I was preparing a way for. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John again refers to Jesus as as God. He's at his side. So last week when we focused on the word, the logos, in, in John, the first chapter, the first verses, it tells us the word, the logos, was with God and the word was God. Now and in verse 14, we're getting it taken even a step further. Last week we focused on the Word, being Jesus, was divine. He was God. Not only just with God, but was God. This week we're going to focus on the next steps that John is telling us. Not only was He God, He became flesh. He put on flesh. He became one of us. And then He dwelt or tabernacled with us. You know, we hear those words, and yeah, we get it, we understand it, I think. To the Jewish mind, this would just be mind-blowing. You know, to the Greeks, they had this idea of the Logos, if you remember from last week. They had a pretty high uh, definition, if you would, of the Logos. They, they had many gods, Zeus and Hermes, but their gods were primarily supermen. Somehow, they became gods. But Logos, in their mind, was a little bit above that. But they didn't see him as being the word becoming flesh. They did not see him as God. And John is hitting them with that information. And then he talks also to these ancient Jewish people. You know, they they almost had, and and you got to hear this the right way, but they almost had too high of opinion of God, if that's possible. And when I say that, what I mean by that was he's unapproachable. We can't even say his name. They had this idea of God, and and Jesus comes, and it tells us in these scriptures, he comes and reveals the Father to us. And if we know anything about Jesus, 
That wasn't him. He came as a servant. He came in humility. As we're pointing towards Christmas when we celebrate celebrate, uh, the incarnation, God coming in the flesh, man, he came as a tiny, helpless little baby born in a manger. So the ancient Jews would have not, this would have just blown their minds. And John is making it so clear. This word you talk about, this logos, is God, first of all. Not only is God, God, he came in the flesh, became one of us. He humbled himself to do that, and then he lived amongst us. And that's what we're focusing on this week. The dwelt among us is going to be my primary focus. I want to just jump back to the scripture, though, where it talks about his glory was revealed to us. He is grace and truth. God, Jesus is fully grace, and he is fully truth. And his glory is revealed. And sometimes when we, we hear that word glory from a biblical sense, we maybe just think of this blinding light that no one could look upon, like God told Moses, I can't show you my glory. But what we're seeing here is the glory of Jesus, his majesty, his humility, his dignity, his, his splendor. And it was revealed in his teaching, in the miracles that he did. It was revealed in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. He revealed his glory completely. So now I'm going to focus primarily on that phrase, he dwelt among us. I said earlier that that veil was torn. Ask the question, was it a coincidence or a divine sign? Well, we all know it was a divine sign from God. When we do this, we can refer to this tabernacle. I believe when we look at the tabernacle, now, some of us maybe aren't familiar with the tabernacle at all, so we're going to have a, a picture. Let's have you jump to those pictures right now. I might be a little bit out of order here. And I know you can't read all the words, especially in the back. One of the things, the architect of this whole tabernacle was God. He gave explicit instructions to Moses. How it was to be built, the materials it was to be made of. He gave explicit directions of every detail of this tabernacle. And I'm going to hope that we see this amazing plan of salvation was revealed over 1,500 years ago, over 1,500 1500 years before Christ. 3,500 years ago from our time now. And it was revealed through the tabernacle. And we're going to look at that and see what I'm talking about. He tabernacled among us. Now, one of the things, and most of you know this about me, I'm very cautious when we start looking at types and shadows because it's very easy when we start looking for types and shadows of anything that we can maybe take it way further than God probably intended. We get a crazy imagination going, and we start saying, this means this, this means this, this means this. And reality is maybe, but maybe not. But on the flip side of that, if we don't consider these types and shadows, we could miss things that God is trying to teach us. So today, kind of as my disclaimer, I'm going to try to stay as close as I can in the types and shadows and the foreshadowing of Jesus' plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, as most theologians would feel safe. Because we're going to see imagery. Some of it you can't miss, really, if you look at the New Testament referring back to it. But some of it you might say, I'm not, where'd that come from? I just want you to know that that can happen. As I said, Moses was given instructions from the Lord. From God. 
And this tabernacle, I'm going to try to lay out as a foreshadowing of Christ and his work. And I'm not going to read all the scriptures. You need to go into Exodus and Leviticus, and you can see where God gives all these instructions. But I'm going to actually refer to some in the New Testament that make this clear. And if you want to just jot down Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, you can see a whole lot of reference to the tabernacle, making it clear that Jesus is foreshadowed by that tabernacle, but he surpasses it completely. And we're going to read a few scriptures. The first scripture I want to read is from Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. And we see this correlation between Christ and the tabernacle. And actually, verse 1 of 9 to 11 really builds up to this. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, one that was not made with human hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And he entered not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The tabernacle points to Christ and his work on the cross. It gives us a prophetic picture, if you would, of that. So if you go back again to the tabernacle slide, he made reference there to the holy place. When you came in the tabernacle, entered into this. Now, when I talk about the tabernacle, just so we're all kind of on the same page. When they were wandering around in the desert, they had gotten instructions to build this. In later years, Jerusalem, the temple, became a model of this that was built in Jerusalem. And they would travel. When they had traveled, they'd have to take this all down, and then they would have to set it all up, and they had to do it very carefully with the instructions of God. And we'll look at some of these implements in it. But this tabernacle is this prophetic picture. And one of the first things I want us to notice is the tabernacle has what's called the outer court. And again, I don't know if you can see the words on the left-hand side. Then the holy place where priests could enter regularly, And in the back, it says the Holy of Holies. That's where the veil was between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. And into that Holy of Holies, only the high priest could only go there once a year. That's it. And in that Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was, representing the holiness and presence of God. So when we look at this, the first thing we need to realize is in the Scripture, they are given instructions, all of it, how it's made, how it's to be set up. But one of the things that was key was it's going to be in the center of all the tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And he gives even instructions of which tribe is going to camp where. On the north side, there was actually three tribes. South side, three tribes. East side, three tribes. He gives all these details. But the important thing, I think, in that picture is the tabernacle was right in the center. The presence of God, the holy place, was in the center of God's people. And I think one of the simple lessons we could maybe learn from that picture is God wants to be in the center of his people today. He wants to be in the center of our lives today because, as we know, he dwells within us. Is he the center of our lives? Or do we put him on the margins of our lives where there's room? when we don't have something else consuming our time. 
and our energy. He told them, this is going to be in the center of the congregation of all 12 tribes of Israel. That's where it was going to be located. And this, as I said earlier, if you want to read Hebrews 9, just the first five, six verses, you get a clear picture from a New Testament perspective of that tabernacle. The layout of the tabernacle. First thing I want you to notice, again, this slide is a little bit better. Maybe you can read it better. But one of the things I want you to notice, and go back to the other slide for just a moment. There's only one gate. There's only one way in. There's not a whole bunch of gates all the way around. There's a picture for us very clearly. There is only one way to even enter in to the presence. There's only one way to come and truly worship. It might even bring to mind the scriptures for us that says in in John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. There's only one gate in the tabernacle as it's set up. And the arrangement of all the different furnishings. Go ahead and go to the next slide. You might be able to see the read it a little bit clearer. But we're going to go through here. As we come in through the first gate, there's going to be the bronze altar, then the laver. And then we get into the holy place, and there's the the candlestick, the light stick, the uh, table with the showbread, the altar of incense, before you even get to the holy of holies. Now, I know to some of you, you maybe never, ever looked at this before. We could spend weeks talking about the tabernacle. We're going to do it in a few minutes. So obviously, I am just coming across on the surface to try to let us see the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and God's plan given to Moses over 3,500 years ago. So as we enter in, there's only one place. It's the gate. Now, some people would say the outer court is a representation of the earth itself. I don't know about that, but it it could work. And inside of that, we see God's plan of salvation for the whole earth. So we'll, we'll go with that. But the first thing that you see when you come in is the bronze altar, or on this diagram called the altar of burnings. The first thing there is the place where the, the lamb was slaughtered and the blood was shed. You couldn't come in, no, you could come no further until there was a sacrifice made. The lamb would be slaughtered. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, on a cross, until that sacrifice was made for us, and until we received that gift of salvation, there's nothing we can do. There's no way to enter. Our worship would mean nothing. Our praise would mean nothing if it were not for Jesus Christ. The first thing that they would come in contact with is this bronze laver. I want to read in a bronze altar. Then they come to the bronze laver, and I want to read a scripture in Titus in reference to this bronze laver. Really what it is is a big container filled with water. So the priests would slaughter the lamb as the sacrifice. And they would be taking some of that blood further in. But they would go ceremonially washing, cleansing 
and for a regeneration. And here's what it says in Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the lamb being sacrificed on that bronze altar, and then symbolically going to the labor where there's a washing and regeneration, representing what the Holy Spirit does in our life. We are born again. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit the moment we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit continues to cleanse us. We might, we might call, call that the sanctification. He continues to work in our lives. The Holy Spirit working in our lives. And then we come to the holy place. Now, some would say if the outer court was the earth, the holy place is a representation of heaven. And the priest could go into the holy place. And they entered the holy place only because of the blood sacrifice and because of the regeneration and cleansing of the water or the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in the holy place, there was some furniture, if you would, some implements. And each one of these, depending on what you're studying, what you read, you may get some different representations or foreshadowing, like I said. But the first you would see is the golden lampstand or candlestick. If you've ever seen a Jewish menorah, it looks like this. And it goes into a lot of detail in the Old Testament of how it's to be made. The, the buds of an almond tree that the oil comes out of and the flames. And you can get this representation of the, the, the budding of the almond tree, the new life. And you can go, go with all of these things. But at the very, very least, in him was life. And the life was the light of man. In John 1, verse 4. Jesus is the light of the world. That candlestick was to, to burn continuously. The oil was continually replaced so that light would never go out. Never go out. Jesus is the light of the world. Then we see the table of showbread. And on it, there are 12 loaves. The first representation is the 12 tribes of Israel. But the showbread, that word means the bread of his presence. The bread of his presence. We know in John chapter 6, Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. We see all these representations in the tabernacle from over 3,500 years ago as a foreshadowing of Christ. So when John in the gospel is writing in chapter 1 that he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, it should have been like a light bulb going on in the Jewish mind if they understood not only the tabernacle, which they traveled with throughout all their years of wandering, but the temple that was now in Jerusalem. It was all a picture of Christ. It was not just about religious activities and religious ceremony. It became that. And in becoming that, meaning is lost. It's kind of like religion can be today if we're not careful. We can get so hung up on man-made ideas, man-made rules, and man-made regulations that we forget what the church is supposed to be 
and what we're supposed to be about. We're not a religious organization. We are the body of Christ. And we're called to go into all the world and make disciples and share the good news of the gospel and so much more. It can be lost in religion if we're not careful. And it's interesting, and I had to look pretty hard to find this, but in Leviticus, you actually hear where it tells us there is a cup of wine also on the table of showbread. And for us, it gives a picture, too, of fellowship with the bread, the eating. The utensils are on that table with the 12 loaves of bread. Those 12 loaves of bread were replaced every Sabbath day, and they were always present. And then when they would replace them, they would be consumed by the priests. Another interesting thing just popped to my mind. We're not going to go way back to the slides. But when God gave instructions to Moses, he told him all of this about the temple. And he says, then I want you to anoint it all with oil. Anoint all of the implements. Anoint the, the canvas. Anoint everything with oil, and then you're going to have Aaron be the high priest, and you're going to anoint him with oil. And one of the names for Jesus is the anointed one. The picture just becomes clearer and clearer as we dig into it and study it beyond the words that are on the, on the page. And to me, it's just so interesting that we still today take, receive communion. We take the bread and the cup and receive communion. And in the tent, the tabernacle, 3,500 years ago, there's a table with the bread and the wine, the cup. And then there's the golden altar of incense. How's our slide? Can we bring it back up? Perfect. Can you go all the way back to the tabernacle slide? Good job. You know, again, you can't see it real well, but in the holy place, you get in there, the candlesticks on the left, the showbreads on the right, and as you continue forward, heading towards the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, right before that veil is the second altar, and it's called the Altar of Incense. No animal is sacrificed on that altar. That altar is where the incense is to be burned continually. And there is at least two foreshadowings that most people would talk about. The incense is rising up as a sweet odor. A sweet odor first maybe of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. The sweetness of that sacrifice to the Father. The acceptability of that sacrifice. And the second picture it foreshadows is the intercessory prayers of the saints ascending to the Father. And of course, Jesus ascended to the Father and he is interceding for us even now in his ministry in heaven. The altar of incense. Christ is our high priest. And then we come to that veil, that veil that tore when Jesus said it is finished, that veil that's just behind the altar of incense separating the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant representing the holiness, the the power, the glory, the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant, and again, 
if you read through it all, there's such detail to God's, God's plan. But it's got a cover on it called, we call the mercy seat. And inside it, there was three things. The law, the Ten Commandments, were in there. Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod, you may say, I don't know anything about Aaron's rod. But if you remember some Bible stories, this rod became a, a, a weapon of deliverance when it was in Moses' hands. He would take this the stick that was Aaron's rod, Aaron's cane almost, and it became a snake before Pharaoh. He touched the water and it turned to blood. But also you may remember the story where they threw this into the water and this dead stick budded and gave forth life. So when we see the, the, the Ten Commandments in there, it's representing the law. We have the uh, Aaron's rod that budded and was also a weapon of deliverance. Life coming from death, which happens to every single one of us spiritually when we accept Jesus Christ. We go from death to life. And also there is there a power of deliverance being represented there. And then lastly, when we look at this, was the manna, the jar of manna. You may or may not know when Jesus or when Moses was leading the people through the desert for 40 years, God provided manna from heaven. God provides for his people, but he is also the bread of life. And we see all of these things foreshadowing Christ and his work from the tabernacle. And as John is speaking those words, he tabernacled among us. It was like a a word picture of Jesus Christ and what he had done. Once again, confirming who he was, who he is. As I said, the lid was called the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then if there's, we've been, believe pictures we see, but we know from the description in the Bible, there was two cherubim, two angels over it with their wings kind of covering it, it describes it, and with their heads down. And you can, there's a lot of symbolism you could go with on that. But what I want to focus on is that mercy seat. And at least one thing it shows to me is the mercy seat covered the law. God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. The law was in there, but it was under that cover. Jesus had came to fulfill the law. The moment that veil tore on the day of his crucifixion when he said, it is finished, it was like a message from heaven saying, the old sacrificial, the old ceremonial system is finished. We are now preparing for a new covenant under Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace. Amen. Now, I know I went through this quick, and you can go so much deeper, and I encourage you to do that. 
especially just go to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 and do a little study in the New Testament if you don't want to go all the way back into the Old. But as we go through that trip, I, I hope we see the salvation message clearly laid out. There is only one gate. There is only one way. It's Jesus Christ. That's it. And if there were not for the next step, the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, there would be no way of forgiveness of sins. There would be no way to fellowship and intimacy. You could never, ever, ever get into the Holy of Holies. It couldn't happen. And the moment of our salvation... We are filled by the Holy Spirit. God dwells and lives in us, regenerating, giving us life where there was spiritual death. And he continues to do a work of cleansing us, sanctifying us as we go through our life. And the incense, the altar of incense, our praise, our worship, our prayers, or the message that that sacrifice was acceptable, just affirming the same thing the resurrection did. And that He is the light of the world. He's the light of our life. He's what gives life. He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He is our sustenance. We need to be spending time consuming the bread of life. It's our sustenance. And then when we're reminded of the Holy of Holies and the veil being torn, what it was saying, and those poor priests that happened to be in there, I'm sure they had no clue. No clue whatsoever what was going on. All of a sudden... They knew that if you went into that Holy of Holies and it wasn't the one time and you weren't the high priest, you were dead. Period. And all of a sudden, it opens up and for the first time, it was for all to see the mercy seat, the the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy of God. That a new era, a new covenant was being established. And he actually declares you and I in Hebrews, as a nation of priests and priestesses with the picture that we are to go into the Holy of Holies by ourselves. We can come because of grace, come before the Lord. Last scripture I want to read is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It says this, and this should be a reminder, but also a wake-up call for the way we live. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who have you have from God, and you no longer are your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. When that temple veil tore, it was not a coincidence. It was a message from heaven clearly demonstrating the plan of God's salvation had come to fulfillment. God the Son, God in the flesh, left heaven, came to earth, humbled himself to come as a baby, totally helpless, to live a life among us, to be a sacrifice. And that's what we point towards when we celebrate and look towards Christmas. The incarnation, God in the flesh. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pray that by your Spirit, you will keep us, keep us focused, even in this season of such busyness, with good things. Celebrating family, gathering together, giving gifts to one another, that we would never forget that Jesus came. God in the flesh dwelt among us. 
and your plan of salvation that was founded before the formation of the world, before you created anything, has been fulfilled through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And God, that we would be challenged by the scripture that I just read, that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, lives in us. We are his temple. And that we should live in such a way to honor this temple, honor you. Lord, I pray that as we continue to go through this season towards Christmas, that we go being led by your Holy Spirit to share the good news of the gospel and the good news of what we are celebrating. Father, I pray for those divine moments when we have the privilege of sharing the hope that's in us, Jesus, your Son, God in the flesh. Amen.